Boy, they were ready to go. <laughs> Junior church, come here for just a second. Guys, this morning is a very special morning. It's the first Sunday of a season we call Advent. Now, that's kind of a word maybe you haven't heard before. Who knows what Advent means? What do you think, Josiah? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, it's almost just, I guess it is kind of calendar. Yeah. Advent, the word means that something has appeared. So when we say something um, advents, that's not a word we use very often, but something could advent. And what is it when we celebrate the Advent season, what are we celebrating that made an appearance? Anybody know? What do you think? Snow. Snow. <laughs> That's a great answer. I think some of us celebrate snow. So that's what do you what do you think, Clara? Uh, the, birth of the birth of Jesus. Snow is a great answer. Sometimes we do celebrate the advent of snow, but here at the Advent season, what we're celebrating is the appearance, the coming into the world of Jesus. At the Advent season, Christmas season is when we celebrate when Jesus came into the world. And traditionally, the church has done that by lighting some candles. Fire, right? This is always, no, stop, 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 don't do that. (laughs) Advent season, guys. And so the different candles represent different things. And this morning, we're going to light the first of the Advent candles, which represents hope. Hope. Ellie, could I ask you to read a Bible verse this morning? Yeah? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my microphone near your mouth, but I won't put it on your ears. But you can just speak into that, okay? Can you read this in just a second? Go ahead. Uh, ah. <laughs> Is that in the inspired text? No? I, I can read it. Can you read that? Okay, Clara wants to read it. Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And the word I uh, thank you guys for reading that. The word I want to draw your attention to is the word hope. Therefore, I will hope in him. His mercies are new every morning, therefore I will hope. Now here's a question, kids. What does hope mean? What do you think? Okay, yeah, praying for something. Yeah, that's, hope is wrapped up in that. Good answer. Yeah, what do you think, Josiah? Mm-hmm. You hope that you Okay. Okay. Yeah, boy, those are all really good answers. Um, did you have something you want to say, Ellie? Uh, hope is like you hope something Yeah, for sure. Hope in the Bible means, and this is kind of some bigger words. It means a confident expectation. So it's. Yeah, very much so. Man, I guess I'm done. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. 
That's exactly what, what Charlie said. Okay. So, so hope, guys. But sometimes we say hope like, like uh, oh boy, I hope I get a toboggan for Christmas. And if I said that hope, it would mean that that's what I want, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. But when the Bible talks about hope, it talks about a confident expectation. Like Charlie said perfectly, <laughs> it's always believing. It's a confident expectation. It's not a weak, I hope so, maybe, maybe not. It's a yes, I believe it will come to pass. I believe it will happen, okay? Now, we can't all light the candle, but maybe next Sunday somebody else can. But this Sunday, because she read the past, or actually, Ellie and Clara, can you guys hold that together and just kind of light it, kind of hold it up here? Until it catches. I think we got it. There it is. Perfect. Now that candle represents hope. And with that, you're dismissed to junior church. (laughs) Guys, put your hands together for our junior church kids. All right. Uh, Let's dive in here and worship our God together. This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, beginning at verses 22 and all the way down through verse 38. Uh, I think the two most forgotten and overlooked characters in the Christmas story are an old man named Simeon and an old woman named Anna. And for whatever reason, and I'm not sure why, they just aren't usually thought of in association with the Christmas story, at least not to the same degree as shepherds, wise men, and angels. Uh, A third character who's slightly more well-known, but also often overlooked in Christmas ornaments and things like that is Herod. You know, that's another guy we could talk about sometime. Uh, But this morning, on this first Sunday of Advent, as we celebrate hope I want us to look at these two figures that we encounter in Luke chapter 2, Simeon and Anna. You can follow along with me. I'll be again in Luke 2, beginning at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel." And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot in there that if um, you're kind of new to the conversation surrounding Christianity, uh, might be confusing to you. Like, uh, what's this deal about um, giving pigeons and turtle doves? And what's the tribe of Asher? I don't want you to get bogged down in all of that just now. The main thing I want you to see here is that these are two people who were looking with confident expectation for God to make good on his promises. That's, that's the main thing here. Luke was also writing uh, to an audience that was not conversant in Jewish religious practice, and maybe you aren't either. And so he does take pains here to explain to some extent what's going on. According to Jewish ceremonial law, following the birth of Jesus, Mary would have been considered ceremonially unclean for a period of 40 days, at the end of which time it was customary to go up to the temple and present your firstborn son to the Lord and to make an offering. So in Luke 2, 22 through 38, we read about them doing just that. Now, Sarah and I, we have had six children, and every time we've had, we've been walking in the supermarket or coming into church or some other place, and babies are magnetic, are they not? (laughs) People just want to come and pinch their little calves, and can I hold them, and all of that. And so I've I've had this in similar experiences, although they never did this. (laughs) They never lifted him up and blessed him and made prophecies concerning any of my six children. Sorry, guys. It's never happened. But here in Luke 2, we find Joseph and Mary doing something, maybe not every day, certainly not. This is only something you would have done with your firstborn son, but it was a matter of course. This is something all parents would have done in that culture and in that day. And when they show up, though, something really amazing happens. While they're there in the temple, they have an unusual, unexpected encounter, one of many that we find in the Christmas story, this time with a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. The baby is still very young, probably in its second month. We know next to nothing about these two people, Simeon and Anna. And as far as we know, they may have been unknown to each other. However, they were both caused by God to be present at the temple when Jesus was presented following his birth. And at least in the case of Simeon, he was there drawn by the Spirit and looking expectantly for the arrival of the Messiah. Unlike the shepherds and the wise men, Simeon and Anna understood more fully the significance of Jesus' coming into the world. And unlike other Christmas visitors, Jesus' coming did not arrive for them unexpectedly. 
In fact, quite the opposite. Simeon and Anna had been looking for the arrival of a Savior with great anticipation. The word I want to draw your attention to in verse 25 and also in verse 38 on this first Sunday of Advent when we celebrate the hope that was born at Christmas is waiting. It says of Simeon that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And we're told that Anna prophesied concerning the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Christmas has always been, for me, a season of excited waiting. Uh, Ever since I was a little child, Christmas Eve is the longest day of the year, bar none. I could not wait to go to bed. It was the only day of the year I couldn't wait to go to bed because the sooner I could fall asleep, the sooner Christmas Day would happen. Waiting, excited waiting, waiting with anticipation. Simeon and Anna were waiting In this, it's this idea of waiting that I want to draw our attention to here at the beginning of the Christmas season. Simeon and Anna certainly have a strong faith. But what we are witnessing here is a forward-looking, future-believing kind of faith. And we call that species of faith hope. Faith is to hope what dog is to Labrador Retriever. Labs are a specific kind of dog, and hope is a specific kind of faith. It's faith in the future tense. If you have faith in some past event, you are saying with bedrock certainty that you believe that it happened. And when you speak of hope as a Christian, we are speaking with the same certainty about a thing not yet seen, not yet happened. I think one of the most impressive moments of leadership in all the Bible is when Joshua went to the Israelites and says, here's what we're going to do at Jericho. (laughs) We're going to march around that place once for a bunch of days, and then We're going to march around it seven times. We're going to blow the horns, and the walls are going to come down. As a leader, at that moment, I cringe. What if it doesn't happen? You're going to look foolish. You're going to look abandoned. But Joshua had hope. Not in the mealy-mouthed way we use the English word hope. I hope my team wins this weekend. I hope... The doctor's test reveals good things. I hope, I hope, I hope. It has this air of uncertainty around it, our word hope, does it not? But when Joshua said, spoke his hope that on the seventh day the walls would come down, there was not an air of uncertainty. His hope was faith in the future tense. And Simeon and Anna model for us an amazing hope. Faith in the broader sense is, is a trusting in a person. Faith is, our, we, God, we trust you. You are trustworthy. What you say is true, and we believe it. It's a personal belief in the trustworthiness of our God. Now, Christians have faith in past events like the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
We have faith in the present for all kinds of things that God has promised, like forgiveness for our sins. Earlier, when Clara read that his mercies are new every morning, that's a present tense thing we celebrate by faith today. But then that passage concludes by saying, therefore, we have hope. Therefore, we have hope, future tense. When we have confidence in some future thing that has been promised and that we're looking for, but it has not yet arrived, we call that hope. And in our Bibles, hope always refers to a confidence concerning the future. I liken the relationship between faith and hope to the belief you have if, if somebody writes you a check. If I came up to you and I wrote you a check for $10, you would, by receiving that check, be expressing faith in me. But when you go to the bank, you'd be expressing hope, <laughs> right? Your, your faith more broadly in, in allowing me to pay by check is a statement that I believe you make good on your debts. I believe that when you make a promise, you can be trusted to keep it. But the check itself is just a promise that money will be transferred. It has not happened yet. And so when you go to the bank, you are expressing hope, which is also a statement of faith in me still. But it's a future-looking, future-believing faith concerning the trustworthiness of me. And so this is the relationship between faith and hope. From our vantage point today, we look back on the events of Christmas with faith. But Simeon was a man who looked forward to those same events with hope. Christmas, at least as it's presented in the Bible, is a future-looking event. But I'm struck by the fact that our cultural celebration of Christmas is so completely wrapped up in a hearkening back to past times. I first noticed this when I was, I spent 15 years, 15 Christmases, guys, in Southern California and Florida. Do you want to know how they celebrate for Christmas in Southern California and Florida? They do their best to make their house look like New England. (laughs) And if that won't do, it looks like some street from Victorian London. Everybody's hearkening back. Everybody's inner compass points northeast during the holidays, it would seem. Or how about um, white, take the song White Christmas, for example. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the ones I used to know. That is the spirit of our cultural celebration of Christmas. It's a hearkening back. It's a backward-looking remembering, nostalgic, the past was better kind of a holiday in our culture. But at its very birth, and even now when it's at its highest peak, Christmas is a forward-looking, future-believing celebration of a God who's going to make good on the check he wrote. And again, the events of that first Christmas are something we look back to with faith. But Simeon and Anna, these two folks were looking forward with hope because God had promised thousands of years in advance that
that he was going to do this thing. The Bible contains hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures, that portion of our Bibles that we share with the Jewish faith. Hundreds of promises concerning the coming Savior. And Jesus fulfilled them all perfectly. He is the perfect fulfillment of every promise that was ever made concerning the coming into the world of a Savior for our sins. And Simeon and Anna believed those promises in the future tense. The word Advent, as I explained to the kids when they were up here before, means the appearing or arrival of someone or something. And this first Advent, the first Advent, which we celebrate at Christmas, is when Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, came into the world and put on flesh. It's the beginning of a great rescue operation. The days of his earthly ministry are faithfully recorded in the gospel, in which, again, all those Old Testament prophecies that fueled Simeon and Anna's hope were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Prophecies like Isaiah 9, 6, and this is just one. We could go through hundreds, guys. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I think one of the most interesting things about this portion of the Christmas story is the way it mingles sad, fallen realities with an explosive joy. It's like scooping up gold nuggets in some very sad, broken receptacle or something. It's a very strange mingling here, guys. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, the church is described in part as a people that are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And we see that mingling of sorrow and joy here in these two encounters with Simeon and Anna. Simeon holds this baby, and the text says that he blessed God. In other words, this is a happy and joyous moment. Simeon proclaims happy and joyous news concerning the child. Namely, he speaks of salvation, light, revelation, and glory. But he also speaks of his own departure. Many cultures have death omens, where if you see a certain thing under certain conditions, it means that a death is impending. They believe these things superstitiously. There's nothing to them. But in all fairness, this is a very true death omen. If I told you right now you were going to die in a plane crash, (laughs) and somehow I knew that, would you ever get on a plane again? Simeon is drawn by the Spirit to go see the death omen Jesus. And he says he departs in peace. You see this thing, you're going to die. Praise God, says Simeon. There's a great mystery there, isn't there? How many people cling to life with a white-knuckle grip? I will avoid anything that means the end of my days under the sun. But not Simeon. What's going on here? There's a real mystery there. We'll circle back to that in a moment. Or take Anna, this woman who is so full of praise at the revelation that this is the one, this is Jesus. She's had a hard life. 
She was married seven years as a young woman. Then her husband died. She's been single ever since. Joy and sorrow all mingled together here in the story. In verse 34, Simeon tells Mary that her baby boy, the cause of all this joyous celebration, will be opposed, or as the King James puts it, spoken against. And this language represents all the rejection, persecution, lies, insults, and of course, the crucifixion that Jesus would experience in his life. And then he adds in verse 35, speaking to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And this was undoubtedly a prophetic reference to the personal grief that Mary would endure when she watched her son experience these things. We know from John 19 that Mary was present at her son's crucifixion. So on this happy, joyous occasion, what is Simeon's message to Mary? Your son is going to be despised, rejected, crucified by the world, and it's going to hurt to watch. A a sword will pierce your soul also, Mary. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. But in the midst of all of this, guys, is a profound hope. I want us to see from this story the difference that hope makes. I have three things. I want to get through them very quickly. The first is this. Hope is what allows us to endure suffering. I I think it's one of the mysterious things about God that he always says in advance what he's going to do. He speaks through his word, by his prophets, to the church. He's He always says in advance what he's about to do. Do you remember that scene from the Old Testament where Joseph is hauled up out of the prison because Pharaoh has had dreams, plural, that he can't interpret? And Joseph is brought before the Pharaoh, and he tells the Pharaoh something very interesting to me. He says to Pharaoh, this is what the dreams mean. You can go look that story up. We won't go into it this morning. But you can be sure it's going to happen, he says to Pharaoh, because he's told you twice. He's given you the same dream twice. And the reason why that's so significant to me is because early, before he was sent into captivity in Egypt, sold off by his brothers as a slave, God gave him two visions. He told him in advance some things. He told it to him twice. And I think that this moment when Joseph speaks to Pharaoh about this, God told you twice, it will surely come to pass, is one of the most revealing moments about Joseph because he had been told twice something that had not yet come to pass either. He is speaking from a place of great hope, a confident expectation that God doesn't lie. But when we come in, and that allowed Joseph, I think, to endure all the suffering that fell on him, the lies, the misrepresentations, the prison time, the threats of death, his brother's betrayal, 
He endured it all with hope because God had said the thing twice. He'd said it. Now, Christian parents, I want to speak to you here for a moment around this moment uh, when Simeon tells to Mary it's going to hurt to watch. We often hear Christian parents say that they want Jesus for their children, and they want that more than anything. But how often do we pause and consider what that might mean for them? That wishing Christ for your child might be the same as wishing rejection for them. Trials, difficult things. What did it mean for the mother of slain martyred missionaries when they wished Jesus for that child? And they wished the great cause of the gospel to be the great central cause of their life. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they, are, they will pers- also persecute you. Now, it's my greatest desire that my children would embrace Jesus. But we have to be prepared for those times when this world will treat our children as it treated Jesus. And to desire that for them. Why desire that? Because of hope. Because of faith in the future tense. Because of belief that God will make good on what he wrote in a way that makes all this present suffering and rejection totally worth it. That can cause me to embrace that suffering with blessed joy. Romans 8, 16 through 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the nature of hope. It allows us to endure suffering. Because we believe, like Simeon, in a coming day when Jesus has promised to return, bringing with him reward and wrath, we believe in a promised day, a coming day, it will not matter, it absolutely will not matter, mom and dad, if your child was well thought of, or healthy, or successful, or anything else. There will be only one thing that matters, and that is their relationship to Jesus. And as Romans 8.17 reminds us, those who suffer with Jesus in this life will be glorified with him in the next. It is a glorious and wonderful thing to be lumped in with Jesus. The Bible gives no comfort or encouragement to us who love this world and who want to be at home in it. Or see their children at home in it. Christian parents should be proud to raise misfits in this world whose hearts are more properly fitted to a future home. A heavenly one. So we should remember that whether or not our child is a misfit in this generation depends entirely on what they are supposed to fit. 
And the Bible says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Bible warns against the love of money, the cares of this life, and the pride of it. It counsels us not to love the world, but to lay up our treasures in heaven. It reminds us that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It admonishes us to be content in all circumstances and greedy after none. And it says to live in such a way that pleases God and not men. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow him. It will be hard. And for us parents especially, it will be sometimes hard to watch. But God promises in his word that it will be worth it. This is how hope helps us to endure suffering. Hebrews 10, 35 through 37 says this, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't throw it away. Live with hope. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Fellow Christian, have hope. Believe his promises. The second one is this. It allows us to die in peace. This is one of the great benefits of hope. What difference does hope make? Simeon has been said, when you see this child, you're going to die. And he says, now I can depart in peace. You can die in peace. Hebrews said that Jesus, in coming into the world, came to save us who, for all our lives, lived in bondage to lifelong slavery to the fear of death. You don't have to live that way anymore. You can die believing in the promise of the coming resurrection because it's true. Your faith is wrapped up in the future tense and the trustworthiness of God who spoke those promises. And you can rest in them even as you go into the grave. You can die in peace. And we've talked about the gospel on many other mornings before. That Jesus has died for us. He took our place. And if you would put your trust in him for salvation, that your salvation is sure and certain. It's given to you by promise, and we receive it by faith. So you can die in peace. Now here's the last thing I'll say, the difference that hope makes. It causes us to make the most of these days that we have while we're waiting. Waiting in the Bible is never, I always think of waiting as just killing time between things, but waiting is an active waiting, I think, or at least when it's best spent. Maybe waiting can be mindless and scrolling on your phone and waiting till the time is up, maybe. But when it's at its highest and best, biblical waiting is an active waiting. I love what uh, Anna does in response to the news that this is the long-awaited Savior. This is the Redeemer. She doesn't scurry off and celebrate privately. (laughs) She starts preaching. Her mouth is opened, and it says, she gave thanks to God, let her first response be worship, and then she spoke of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
Isaac Watts was one of the most prolific hymn writers of all time. Uh, By 1748, when he died, Watts had written a whopping 750 separate hymns, including 10 that I found in our church's hymnal. And arguably, Watts' most famous hymn that he wrote is the Christmas classic, Joy to the World. That's that's one of Watts' best-known, most celebrated works. Interestingly, though, Joy to the World, although it's now universally recognized as a Christmas song, was not written by Isaac Watts about Christmas at all. He wrote it not about Jesus' first coming into the world, but his second. It's true. Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World about the second coming of Jesus. And if you notice the lyrics of the song, you will see there is nothing there about shepherds, a manger, wise men, angels, or any other character or element that we would normally associate with the Christmas story. And the reason for that is Watts wrote it about the second coming. It talks about let earth receive her king. Well, at the first coming, they didn't receive their king. They crucified him. And he writes these words, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Don't you look forward with hope to the day when no more will sins and sorrows grow. There is a sense in which the promises of the kingdom can be described as already but not yet. They're given to you by promise. But one day, all sins and sorrows will cease. Today, we cry out as God's people, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in these days, while we wait, wait for the blessed hope, our days are full of purpose as we start to put the pieces back together here among us in the church as we wait for the promised day to enter into all that has been promised to us. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful example of Simeon and Anna, for the hope that they held, a hope, God, that rested in a a personal belief in your trustworthiness. God, you have spoken wonderful promises to us in your word. And God, just as Simeon and Anna looked forward with a hope-filled faith for Jesus' coming into the world, we look with the same hope to his second coming, the soon return of Jesus, which you have promised us in your word. God, you have encouraged us with so many passages to cling with hope to that coming day. And God, in the midst of these days, it is a powerful help to us in enduring sufferings of all different kinds. It is a help to us, God, in our choosing of you over the temptations of this world. God, it even allows us to die in peace, knowing that that is not the end. And God, it helps us to fill these days that we're living in with a joyous purpose, Father, this morning has been a very hopeful morning. 
I think back to the incredible story that Becca shared. Father, I think to the kids gathered around the Advent wreath, talking about you. God, we are a people filled with hope, which is to say we believe what you have said will yet come to pass. Help us to live like that's true. In Jesus' name, amen.